It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing Theresa May's latest Brexit manoeuvres, or the lack of them, and UKIP's ongoing leadership contest. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by James Blitz, our Whitehall editor, and Henry Mance, the FT's political correspondent. Thank you all for joining. So we'll go back to Brexit. The summer is over. Theresa May is back from her holidays. And it looks as if there's some signs of what the government is actually going to do on Brexit. Since that vote on June 23rd to leave the EU, there's been very little indication from the government or the cabinet about what Brexit is going to look like and how it's going to be achieved. We saw a little bit of that this week with all the cabinet trooping off to Chequers, where they had a meeting and out of that meeting emerged a few key things. Now, James, there was no specific detail here. I don't think we're going to get any detail for a while, but we did get a few things. There's going to be no parliamentary vote on Article 50. They're going to prioritise cutting migration over retaining full access to the single market. And Britain is going to be looking for a bespoke deal from the EU. It doesn't want a Norway style or a Switzerland style. It wants its own thing here. How significant are these or is this all just background noise at the moment? Well, at the end of this summer, anything that comes out from the Cabinet or from Theresa May is interesting because so little has been said. I think, broadly speaking, it would have been very surprising if they'd said the opposite of that list that you've just given. The UK is going to want to have some kind of control over inward migration from the EU. It is at the same time going to want to secure the economy as best it can. There was a statement saying that uh, it wants a positive outcome for those who wish to trade goods and services. So there is that balance between, on the one hand, migration, on the other hand, the economy. And at the same time, the government is pretty clear that it is not going to allow any kind of vote in the Commons on Article 50, and that's no big surprise. There is a legal challenge to that that's coming to the Supreme Court next month. It's very unlikely, I think, to win they have the power to go ahead with that under the royal prerogative. So in that sense, the big debate in Cabinet between those who want hard Brexit, those who want soft Brexit, those who want more on migration, those who want more to save the economy, that's yet to happen. And going back to the Parliament thing for a moment, now obviously the House of Commons and the House of Lords voted several times on having the EU referendum. I think it was four to six times or something, the various amendments and times that it went through the House. Now a lot of the Remain supporting MPs, folks like David Lammy, the backbench Labour MP, and Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, are obviously a bit disgruntled at the referendum result. And I think there has been a sense that they want to overturn the result and they want to use Parliament to do that. Now now, I understand that Theresa May doesn't want to have a parliamentary vote because of timing, because the idea that if you have a vote and have a debate, it could take months for it to worm through the various stages, and that would therefore delay activating Article 50. But Parliament must get a say at some point on what the deal is, or will we just have Article 50 negotiate and leave without Parliament getting involved at all, given that it sort of endorsed the original referendum? What's your take on it? Broadly speaking, you're right. Somebody's got to have a say at some point 
on the final deal that is agreed by the UK with the EU. That's absolutely clear. Now, that could be Parliament, it could be a general election, it could be another referendum, who knows? It could be one of those things. But there clearly has to be some kind of approval for the new home that the British finally enter. But you're absolutely right. At this stage, I don't think there really is much of a case to have a vote for triggering Article 50. In the Commons, I've always thought it's a bit of a canard, frankly. If you actually look at the referendum result and how it breaks down across constituencies, it's true. Two-thirds of MPs were four remaining. But the bottom line is that in something like 450 of the English constituencies, that's about 450 out of more than 500, the public voted to leave. Now, MPs are not going to be able to turn their back on that. It's certainly true that if there was a paving vote on Article 50 in the Lords, that would take a long time and create parliamentary obstacles galore. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think they will use the Rob prerogative for Article 50 and get on with it. Because I think the House of Lords is also a very tricky situation as well, because um, a lot of the peers have said that they would block legislation to leave the EU. Baroness Wheatcroft was one example of those. And if you had that, Theresa May would find herself in a very difficult situation here because you've got a democratic mandate to leave the EU from the British people. You've got the unelected House of Lords, which is sort of on shaky ground as it is, as long as it doesn't make too much trouble, it's sort of left to itself. But she could find herself having to bring forward much greater constitutional reform to reduce the House of Lords or even abolish it if it tried to block Brexit. And that could just unfurl in many more drastic ways. I very much agree with your analysis. I mean, if it came to it, I think the House of Lords would be on a very sticky wicket, to use a little English phrase, to try and somehow delay or block Article 50 in another way. It's not going to happen. My view is that of all the aspects of the debate that I think we can put in a corner, I think this one. question of a, a vote on Article 50 is one of them. I just don't think it's going to happen. So essentially, the question comes down to this dividing line, which is controlling migration and access to the single market, because businesses want to either remain in or have tariff-free access to the single market for at least goods, services is another question, to maintain their business. You know, a lot of international firms who, in the UK, don't want to change that relationship. But being in the single market requires free movement of people. And that is essentially, I would say, is what British people have voted against and I think that's how the government has interpreted that vote as well so the question is how do you make those two things come together at the moment the cabinet is trying to have a sort of carte blanche and say we are going to have both we're going to have a uniquely British deal that will allow us to control migration and still have some involvement in the single market but is that even possible is that just pie in the sky thinking at the moment Well, it's very hard to say at the moment. You're absolutely right. There is going to have to be a trade-off, and people are looking at different versions of it. They're saying we could have the same kind of relationship that Norway has within the EEA, but at the same time with more safeguards on migration, so-called EEA minus. Alternatively, we could have the same free trading arrangement that Canada has with the EU, but at the same time with more access to the single market than Canada has, especially for our services. Canada plus is what it's called. So there are all these different versions around. I don't think we're going to get much clarity on that for a few more months is my guess. I think this has got to work its way through the system. All these Whitehall departments are coming up with their assessment of what they need and there will have to be some kind of brokerage, ultimately I think by Theresa May and Philip Hammond. One of the key questions I think is how long have they got? That's one of the things which we we haven't looked at and at the moment the assumption is 
that Theresa May won't trigger Article 50 before the start of next year. And over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of speculation that she could go longer than that, that she might actually wait until after the French presidential election, because at the end of the day, it's really very hard to do any kind of negotiation while France and Germany are in electoral season. I think one of the things that's worked well for her, has actually helped her, which hasn't been mentioned, is that the economic situation in the UK is a little bit better than people had anticipated at the end of the summer. Now, the long-term situation is very unclear, and you've seen a big devaluation of the pound, and as Rupert Pennant-Ray was writing in the FT the other day, ultimately, former Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, that is going to make itself felt. But... It is certainly the case that the moment you've got consumer confidence is really very strong. We've had very good manufacturing data in the UK. Business indicators are not good at all. Forward-leaning business indicators are not good. People are anxious in business. But I think that's made things easier for her because I think if the economy was going to part at this moment... I think she'd be under a lot more pressure to define the position. There was obviously these cataclysmic predictions that came from people like George Osborne, the former Chancellor, who talked about this budget that would have to be implemented that would have been very, very drastic. And this was part of what was so-called Project Fear from the Remain campaign, trying to fear people into voting to stay in the EU referendum. But I think we'll have to wait and see. And on the timing issue, I sort of feel that for the next few weeks and months, as long as the government does Brexity things and it looks and sounds as if they're making progress, they can buy themselves some time to figure out where we're going to lie on that balance that we were talking about earlier. But I think once you hit early 2017, that's when sort of it hits a point at which people will begin to say, well, hang on a minute, we voted for Brexit. When are we going to have Brexit? And I think this is why there's the aim to try and activate Article 50 within the first few months of next year. Yes, I broadly agree with that. I think that's uh, very much the thinking. I think they'll have to do it at around that time or give some indication of that because I don't think they will keep the right wing of the party under control otherwise. And all the Brexit voters as well up and down the country who will be on the streets if they don't if they feel they've been ignored. Now, the other thing, of course, is while all this is going on, there's a lot going on for Mrs May domestically here that Brexit is going to be an all-consuming task for the government and for the civil service that the Cabinet met yesterday. They talked about social mobility and other areas, but Brexit was the real focus and it's the real enigma that people want to know about. But she's also got dis- difficult decisions to make on Heathrow expansion in the next few months. There's the junior doctor strike, which is also ramping up again with a big strike planned in the next few weeks. You've got the issues with the train network, particularly the southern network. So all this is going on while trying to deal with Brexit. You know, is there capacity in government and the civil service, in your view, James, to deal with all this? Well, the civil service is more stretched than at any time in its recent history. That is certainly the case. Due to cuts and Yes, and, cuts and, that and sort of so thing. on. And, of course, the need to reconfigure so much of Whitehall for the Brexit decision. You're absolutely right. I think one of the big tests for Mrs May in the next few weeks is to show that while Brexit is the biggest issue for the UK on the horizon, it's not all-consuming, that it's not drying up every other aspect of what she does in government. I think it's incredibly important from her point of view that she comes to a firm decision on Heathrow versus Gatwick, airport expansion in the south of England next month. They've given a strong indication that they want to make that decision, and if they make a clean decision on that, she'll have done something 
which David Cameron and his predecessors were unable to do. Of course, there are very different views on this inside Cabinet. So she does have to reconcile on that. The junior doctor strike is another important issue. And, of course, the autumn statement, which affords an opportunity, of course, because the autumn statement will be an opportunity to actually see some relaxation of austerity, which everybody committed themselves to after the referendum was over. But all told... It is very important that she shows that Brexit isn't wiping everything else off the map in terms of policy making. And Heathrow is the first really important test of that. And I think the autumn statement, which will actually be in December, just to confuse listeners with um, the timing of that, that'll be the first time we've seen Philip Hammond, the new Chancellor, at the dispatch box presenting his fiscal plan for the next six months because we haven't heard much from Mr Hammond. We have heard briefings, though, that he has been much more on the argument of retaining access to the single market because he's obviously got businesses trooping in and out of the Treasury all day long telling him we've got to maintain as much access as possible possible, as few trade barriers as possible, and also as few restrictions on the movement of people as possible. That's going to hit up very directly with what the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, and Mrs May, and others in the Cabinet are going to want to be achieving. So I think he's going to be an interesting one to watch, and as you said, to see what he produces out of that. Having seen all this, though, James, do you feel any more or less confident after the movements this week on the government's ability to implement Brexit? I honestly think it's impossible for anybody to say at this moment. I mean, there has been no hard and fast decision. There's been no firm decision that shows that we're going in a particular direction. There's no firm decision on timing. Things one has to remember are better than they might have been under the... It's not so long ago that we thought we would still be in the throes of a Conservative leadership campaign. That was cut short. And, of course, you're seeing the enormous damage that the the leadership campaign is doing to Labour. That has been avoided for the Conservatives. There are clearly very different views across the Cabinet table of the direction to go. I do underscore what you've said about Philip Hammond. I think although Hammond is very quiet, I hear a lot of people in Whitehall saying that actually there's too much focus just on the three Brexiters, Fox, Davis, Johnson. Hammond and May are ultimately the real powers here who will decide the direction in which things go. I hear a number of people saying that. But in terms of the overall position, it's going to take time. We will not have clear indications, at least for a few more months, of whether Britain can begin to overcome this enormous hurdle. And now on to UKIP, which is also having its own leadership contest at the moment. Nigel Farage stood down for the third time after the EU referendum as leader of the party, and the battle is coming to a head to succeed him. The two main candidates are Diane James, an MEP for the South East England and the party's deputy chair, and Lisa Duffy, who is a UKIP councillor and popular with the grassroots. Henry Mans, I'm sure none of our readers will have any idea who those two people are. Let's begin with Diane James, who I'd say is probably the most likely person to win this contest and take UKIP forward. What's there to know about her, if anything? Policy-wise, I'm afraid there's not much we can say because Diane herself has said this isn't a time to propose new policies. She hasn't got any new policy ideas and she won't be campaigning in this election on policies. So you're going to have to look at her background. Uh, She's a councillor in Hampshire. She was previously an independent, switched to UKIP and lost the seat. She is an MEP and she is, we think, Nigel Farage's favoured candidate. She seems to have a bit of money from the likes of Aaron Banks behind her. And so she would represent continuity, as opposed to Lisa Duffy, who 
comes from the main other wing of the party, which is the sort of centrist, moderate, a little less aggressive tone on immigration side. And she's a councillor in Cambridgeshire and has a reputation for local campaigning and actually winning seats, which is something that UKIP has often struggled to do despite its popularity. The interesting thing about this contest is the two main candidates we would have said if we were sitting here a year ago who'd be in the contest are not in the contest, which is Suzanne Evans, who was the party's deputy chair, has had several spectacular fallings out with Nigel Farage and is currently suspended from the party, so therefore can't run. And the other one is Stephen Wolfe, who was the party's migration spokesman, a big figure during the general election campaign last year. And he managed to put his application in 17 minutes late, I believe, which then excluded him from the contest, which we look at Labour and think that their leadership is all a bit of a catastrophe. But UKIP seems just as controversial. Yeah, it's a very strange spectacle to watch. And it's like watching a play where all the major sort of A-list actors who are meant to be on stage have all been taken ill and you're watching their their deputies because it's not only the ones you mentioned, but Paul Nuttall, who offered a real hope of a breakthrough in the North, isn't there. Douglas Carswell, the MP, is not there. In fact, he doesn't want the job and he couldn't actually apply for it anyway because he hasn't been a member long enough. So you have all these people who at least have some cut through on radio, on TV, who are known to the public and they're not taking part. And it's really looking very B-list. And I think the danger for UKIP is that they emerge from this not having had a leadership election, which has had much prominence, not having got much airtime. And they really allow the Conservative Party to become the party of the Brexit debate. So soft or hard Brexit, that becomes an internal Conservative Party debate again. Because you wrote a very good report in the FT on this, the fact that Brexit was UKIP's ultimate moment. It's what the party existed for. It spent 20 years campaigning for it. But now it's got Brexit. What is the point of UKIP? And I think that these candidates are trying to find a new purpose for it. And the one that was talked about a lot was appealing to the Brexit voters in the North, those people who voted Labour for historical reasons but then backed Brexit and have found themselves to be out of sync with the current Labour Party. But the question is, if they chose Diane James, for example, she's from the South, she's an MEP from the South East, and some people have said that she's not willing to campaign in the North. I'm not sure how much truth there is for that. But she's she denies very... this question about whether she won campaign and she said yes I did and people close to other candidates are suggesting she didn't but I think either way she looks very much like a southern candidate whereas Paul Nuttall, Stephen Wolfe, people from Liverpool and Manchester look like those who could appeal to former Labour voters. Diane James has promised to work with Stephen Wolfe to build that national presence but I think the major question for them is where is their opportunity to pressure Theresa May? Um, they're having a slight debate about Article 50. Should the party be advocating ignoring Article 50 and just breaking away from the EU straight away? And these are kind of more in the weeds than I think a lot of UKIP voters would normally like to do. And their big overarching message, which was very popular and very effective, has gone away. And so has the spokesman who made it a national issue. Mm. Because their big thing's always been migration, essentially. And it's about curtailing the number of people who come into the UK. And I suppose that is still up in the air, as we've heard from Theresa May and discussed earlier in the podcast, um, that she's taking a tough line on migration, which again sort of shoots the UKIP fox in a way that if she's saying the end of freedom of movement of people, then what does UKIP appeal to then? Who's it going to vote for? And as you mentioned, Mr Farage has disappeared off. Well, he's been in America, bizarrely enough, and has been building his international following um, since leaving UKIP. So it's going to be an interesting act to follow that, isn't it? 
Yeah, and all the candidates are, are trying to make themselves appeal close to Nigel and say, Nigel did a great job. Now we need someone slightly different, but I can't be Nigel. Um, on migration, they do have an opening. I mean, Theresa May was the Home Secretary who failed to hit the migration target. 100,000 target. Exactly, and who has now ditched it. Although she says, you know, we're looking for a deal that does curb uncontrolled migration from other EU countries. So they should have a figure there who they can argue can't be trusted with migration figures. The problem is, does this go back to being a small group who are talking about issues such as banning the burqa, rather than engaging with real sort of working class discontent, which won the referendum? Mm. And that's the sort of fork that the party's at, isn't it? That it could take the road of saying, we're going to go for those voters in the north, in you know Liverpool and Newcastle and places that voted heavily for Brexit, and say to them, we will represent you and try and get a parliamentary footing, which has eluded them under Nigel Farage. Or they could go back to kind of you know talking about the things they did throughout the noughties when no one really took much notice of them. The other issues, money as well, that UKIP is not a rich party and it's pretty much reliant on one donor, which is Mr Aaron Banks, you mentioned before. Now, Mr Banks has talked about creating a new political movement in Momentum of the Right, which is a reference to Jeremy Corbyn's Outriders. If he does that, and if he sort of moved away from UKIP, it would have serious financial issues because it's always quite precarious and can never really seem to afford anything. Mm. And I went to one of the hustings in London, which um, is a small turnout, but you could see very much it was a group of you know, over 65 males, mainly, who were in the audience. So it's kind of the loyalists of UKIP are a very a narrow bunch compared to some other parties, and that could become a challenge for them. Funnily enough, if Britain does leave the EU, then they lose the place which has been their best footing, which has been the European Parliament. So they have to rely on local councils, and they'll have to get into Westminster. And perhaps campaigning against Westminster, saying that you know the House of Commons and the House of Lords don't serve people, that could be a message. But in this leadership campaign, no one has yet adopted it with the fury you'd expect. Exactly, and um, Lisa Duffy, just to mention her briefly, who's the uh, this other wing of UKIP, so the anti-Farage wing, you could call it. There's lots of wings in UKIP. It's quite hard to follow which one's going on with which. That The Suzanne Evans, Douglas Carswell, which have been very critical of Farage and his approach throughout the referendum campaign, have gone behind Lisa Duffy, but she's made some very controversial remarks about banning Muslim veils and it you know this was meant to be seen as the softer friendlier face of UKIP whereas in fact it seems to be just as well politically naive you might say at best at worst very prejudiced. Yeah and if you say something like that that's the one that the media is going to pick up on and Bill Etheridge I think who is another MEP says he agrees with the policy but he doesn't think that it should be talked about because then the press will pigeonhole it. Then there's Philip Broughton a former wrestler who doesn't agree with the policy and he wants to talk about economic issues but you know as soon as you say you want to ban the burqa that gets a few people online very excited and it gets people thinking UKIP is one thing when it's been successful being another thing. I suppose the most interesting question is is this the end of Nigel Farage and UKIP? Do you think there's any chance he might return for a fourth run at the top job. He had a real frustration, which was that the party was a lot of hassle to run. And if you looked at this leadership... Well, look at this leadership, <laughs> exactly. It's not going to make you think, this is a kind of well machine that I want to come and sort of turn on the engine again. Well, we'll see what happens with that. And obviously, UKIP will choose its new leader in the next few weeks, and we can come back to it then. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all the guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. 
You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.